You cannot be a leader for long without facing some very difficult moments. Two workers made one little mistake. They broke a safety rule and one of the workers was killed. And I was asked to accompany the CEO and inform this gentleman's wife and family that he wouldn't be coming home that day. Can you imagine? Tim Clark says what he discovered is that accident happened because of a culture where people didn't feel safe to speak up. Tim, who has a PhD from Oxford, decided to start studying fear in the workplace. If they can't speak up, the organization cannot self-diagnose and self-correct. It loses the capacity to do that. Tim's book, The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, is one that I sought out because of how many companies right now have a culture of fear. We've got to do something about it. This is the class your business school didn't offer. It's the training your employer still hasn't provided. How do leaders like us get people to do what we need them to do so we can grow our results and live the life we desire? That's the question, right? This podcast contains the answers. I am Russ Hill and welcome to Culture Hacks. Tim, I want to start our conversation the same place you started this book. And to some who are listening or watching, that might seem like a dark place to start, but it is where you chose to start the book. And that is with an experience talking to the family of an employee of yours at a still a huge still factory about the death of their husband and father at work. So two questions as we start off. One, why did you start the book that way? And give us, I guess, first start with why, give us the background on that story for those that haven't read the book yet. And two, why did you start the book that way? Right. The background is that uh, I was doing a PhD at Oxford. I came back to the States. I needed another year to finish my research. I had to get a job. I jumped into a, to work for, at a, at a steel manufacturing plant, which is very unusual. And, uh, in, in, in heavy industry, as you might imagine, safety is, it's not just, it's safety is a religion mm-hmm. or, or close to. It's something that you preach and you emphasize and you reinforce every day because it's so important. P- people can get hurt or killed if they make one little mistake. And so on a particular day, uh, two workers made one little mistake. They broke a safety rule. And one of the workers was killed. And I was asked to accompany the CEO and inform this gentleman's wife and family that he wouldn't be coming home that day. As you can imagine, that was a defining experience for me personally and professionally. And it, it helped me understand. I've been studying organizational change and culture at Oxford. And I understood that what I learned is that you can't have a strong safety culture unless you're paying attention to all the details and you're paying attention to behaviors, very concrete behaviors, and you're consistent. And I, I was able to apply that understanding to the cultural side and to what we now know of as psychological safety. Mm-hmm. And I realized that the principles that apply are the same. The way we apply it is a little different. And that was a big insight moment for me, kind of an epiphany moment for me, 
when I was, you know, I had my hat, hard hat on and mm-hmm. I was working in this heavy industrial environment, but it, it just clicked. And um, that led me to dig deeper into this side of the research. Well, because you needed, you needed that blue collar, um, tough as nails, hard hat wearing um, team of yours, thousands of people working at the plant. You needed them to feel the safety to speak up. Am I connecting those dots? Yeah. You cannot create a safe culture that governs itself if the people can't speak up. Because if they can't speak up, then organizationally, the organization cannot self-diagnose and self-correct. It loses the capacity to do that. Because if, if leaders are managing and leading by fear, then what happens is they induce dependency and learned helplessness into the culture. And people are waiting around to be told what to do, or they make mistakes or break rules and they don't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. Those things become pathologies in the culture and, and you can't get to where you need to get. So the corollary is in, in a heavy industrial environment, you got to be safe. In most every other organization, you have to be able to innovate mm-hmm. in order to survive because innovation is the lifeblood of growth. You can't do that in a fear-based organization. You can't do that if people can't speak up and challenge. If you can't have that, that creative abrasion, you're not going anywhere. Yeah, it's interesting because you, you see a book with, you know, the main title of the four stages of psychological safety, and you might not think of it as an innovate, innovation book, but th- this book is about innovation. At least that's 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 the way I read it. And and one of the one of the pages you, you talk about, you know, a list of familiar companies that didn't innovate Kodak, Blockbuster, Toys R Us, Palm, Circuit City, the list goes on and on. Yeah. And one of the points that I thought you made really, really effectively in the book was um, so often we think about those companies and we think, well, it's a shame that they went out of business because they didn't have as good ideas as Netflix or Amazon or fill in the blank with the companies that are thriving now. That That's actually not reality, right? They're really smart people working at each of those companies. But perhaps what did the company in or any of those companies was a lack of psychological safety where people could express a, a, their ideas and challenge the status quo. That's exactly right, Russ. Those companies died of self-inflicted wounds. They, 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 weren't, they, they weren't beat by other companies. They beat themselves. They're filled with highly intelligent people. But what happens is they become insulated. They become isolated. They lose their, they lose their adaptive capacity. They stop circulating local knowledge, and they become willfully blind. So that's what happens to a culture where you can't be candid. You don't have a license to disagree. If you can't do that, you can't innovate. You can't challenge the status quo. So you are impaired. You're handicapped as an organization. So extremely, you know, organizations filled with extremely talented, bright people, they suffer these consequences. And we see it over and over again where they get to this, this, this point of willful blindness and they die. Mm-hmm. So they kill themselves. Yeah. So have you, Tim, in all your work with organizations, have you ever met a leader that goes, 
Yeah, I actually, I, I, I think I create a culture where people have fear of speaking up and, and I don't allow them to challenge the status quo. Th- that leader doesn't exist, do they? Um, we all think for, we're open to innovation, <laughs> right? She, it's a really, it's a really great question, Russ. Uh, I think on, on a moment's reflection, a lot of leaders realize that they are using too much command and control and fear and intimidation, but most of them are in denial and they don't realize the extent to which they are doing this. Um, because all you have to ask them is let's reflect on the last week. When did you invite challenge? When did people really, uh, put challenging ideas on the table? When did they push you? When did they, when did they rock the status quo and how did you emotionally react to that? It comes back to your behavior in these moments of truth. How do you emotionally respond to dissent? Do you welcome it? Do you accommodate it? Do you encourage it? Do you participate in it? Right. This, this, Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of denial that goes on because leaders hide behind title position and authority instead of getting out there and saying, let's innovate. But the other reason is that they they have a vested interest in the status quo. And so when someone challenges it, they take it personally. Okay. Talk talk more about that. Cause I want to know what, cause so many people feel like they work in that environment and, and they're wondering, well, what motivates the leader for defending the status quo? What is it? Well, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pride and ambition and hubris tied up in the status quo. The status quo provides incentives that many senior leaders want to keep in place mm. in terms of rank, in terms of compensation, in mm. terms of status, in terms of all of the rewards. And yet they know that they're on an amortization schedule. They know it mm-hmm. because, right? The, right. Every all sources of competitive advantage are melting. The only question is, what is the rate of the melt? Mm. But, but it's very difficult for leaders to be as dispassionate and as ob- objective and as impartial as they say they want to be. They need to do that so that they can continue to, to try and find sources of competitive advantage. But when the reality is, they get in the way. So the bottom line is here that the leader, when it comes to innovation, the leader is either leading the way or getting in the way. The leader is never neutral in this process. Mm-hmm. Say that line again. All, what, all Competitive advantage is melting. Say that again. The, all sources of competitive advantage are melting. That is- The only question is, what is the rate of the melt? That is, is that, I don't think I read that in the book. That is a really, maybe it was, and that is a really good line. It's the type of, it's the type of lines or sentences, phrases that the book is filled, filled with. So I want to, I want to, I want to get to the four stages here in a minute because yeah. there's a ton of value in that. We're not going to have time to go through all of them in depth. We'll leave that for the book, but we can in- introduce everybody who's listening or watching to them. What, but before we do that, I want to, I want to look through your eyes so you're hired by a company, you walk through the doors, you, you, you log into Zoom and watch the meeting. What are you looking for that gives you clues as to, okay, there is, there's an atmosphere, a culture of psychological safety here, or, oh crud, we got a lot of work to do? 
Right. So we're, what we're looking for, Russ, is we're looking at team dynamics. Okay. And we can tell pretty quickly what's going on because when humans go into social situations, the first thing they do is threat detection. They want to know, is this environment safe or unsafe? If it's safe, then I'm playing offense. Mm -hmm. If it's safe, then I engage in what I call acts of vulnerability, such as asking a question, <laughs> right? If I, if I believe it's unsafe, now I'm playing defense. Mm -hmm. If I'm playing defense, I manage personal risk and I'm not going to challenge I'm not going to push. I'm not going to right. I'm not going to. Mm. I'm not going to rock the status quo because I have to play defense. I have to manage personal risk. It's about self-preservation and loss avoidance. It's a lot of silence too, right? Yeah, a lot of silence. So you have yeah. to. This is about the science of silence and yeah. interactions. And yeah, so love you go in, the team is immediately. You can see what's going on. You can see people engaging or not engaging in these acts of vulnerability. So you pick it up pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. the, the team can't hide it. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. You can't hide what's going on because if it's a charade and you're trying to hide the real dynamics, mm -hmm. then the charade is already revealing what's going on. Right. But, so if but, the media but the leaders so often blind to it, right, Tim? I mean, they're not seeing it. Yeah. Because so you've, got to, the, you've got to help what, them see it. That's right. What the leaders are doing is the leaders are not dual monitoring content and dynamics. Hmm. They're so preoccupied with themselves. They love to hear themselves speak, right? They're dripping with ego. There's a lot of bias that they are not – they're not being objective. They're not being cultural anthropologists that are paying attention. So a lot. Of, so one of the first things that I recommend to the leader, whether it's you know a division president or a or a CEO or whatever, is don't run the meeting. Hmm. Give the reins to somebody else. Shut up. Watch and listen. I want you to pay attention to team dynamics. I want you to pay attention to the interpersonal patterns that you see. Take yourself out of it and observe very carefully. That's that's one of the, the best and first things that, that a leader's got to do. do. Do you recommend that? By, I love that. Do you recommend that that happen consistently or that's just a one time or a few times thing while they're analyzing the culture? Consistently. Okay. Yeah, so, consistently. So the, the leader of a team, you you would suggest rarely runs his or her own team's meeting. That's right. Because I love that. I love that. if you have established ground rules, terms of engagement, right, for the way that we're going to work together, you don't need to police that. It's ridiculous. Have somebody else run the meeting. You got to have an agenda. And then you can sit back and you can be a participant observer. You can, you can participate. But the other thing that you're going to do is you're never going to speak first. Never. Because your positional power has veto power. Mm -hmm. And it also is, um, it's too powerful. And so you need to wait. So that's another best practice for the leader that has positional power. 
Love that. Love that. Okay. So um, let's go through and maybe just do a quick overview of these four stages that the book is built around inclusion, safety, learner, safety, contributor, safety, and challenger safety. Perhaps the best way to do this, Tim, you, I'm sure you've, you, you've talked about this a million times in interviews like this. So you give us just a brief introduction overview of each one of those. And then I've got a few questions about a couple of them. Sure. Well, let's begin with psychological safety overall. What is it? It's it's the concept that it's not expensive to be yourself in a social setting. Okay, but now we got to break that down. And so based on research, empirical research, we've been able to figure out that psychological safety progresses in stages and it follows the pattern of basic human needs. Mm -hmm. So stage one is inclusion safety, which means I feel included, accepted. I feel a sense of belonging. That's always the, that's always the foundation. Mm -hmm. And our survey research shows that if you take a group of people and you, and you ask them, what's the first thing they're concerned about in a social situ situation? That's it. It's, am I included? Do I belong? Am I accepted? So that's stage one. Yeah, that's your foundation. Then we build on that. Stage two is learner safety which means that I can learn, I can ask questions, I can give and receive feedback, I can experiment, I can make mistakes without being embarrassed or marginalized or punished in some way. And we, we all need to be able to do that. But then, and then we go to stage three. Stage three is contributor safety, which means that I can take what I learned and use it. I can apply my skills, my experience, my knowledge, and that's, that's a natural human instinct. After we learn, we want to go apply. We want to use what we have learned. So that's the, that's the natural progression that takes us from learner safety to contributor safety. Then we finally get to stage four, which is the culminating stage, which we call challenger safety. And that means that you can challenge the status quo without jeopardizing your personal standing or reputation. This is the hardest part. This is the hardest thing mm -hmm. to do because your personal level of exposure and vulnerability are, are, are pegged out. You're putting it on the line. And for many people, it's even, it's, it's unnatural to challenge. Now, for some people, it's very natural. Mm -hmm. For many people, it's not, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. And so for challenger safety, the conditions, the, the environment has to be able to support your challenging behavior. If it doesn't support that, you're going to retreat and recoil, and you're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. So right now, based on our global database of for, for the four stages, only 7 to 8% of all teams have challenger-level safety and are able to sustain it. That's how difficult it is. Do, do, does every team need that level? Is I the goal to get to that level? I believe it does because it does not matter what sector you're in. You could be in higher education. You could be in government. You could be in healthcare. You could be in nonprofit. You could be in, in, in the private sector. An organization has to renew itself. It has to keep getting better. It has to, and how does that happen? That means that you are taking a critical look always at what you do, how you do it, and why you do it. 
and you're trying to improve, there's always the next step. So I think it's something that every team and every organization has to do. Yeah, man, I wish I wish we had more time to where we could dive in and spend 10 minutes on each one. But we'll leave that we'll leave that for the book inclusion, learner, contributor, and then ultimately challenger safety. I found a ton of value in I mean, that basically it's a chapter for each one of those in the book, a section for each one of them outlining what what that term means and then what a leader does or what happens on a team that has that sort of that stage of safety. Um, before we wrap up, I want to ask you perhaps one or two other quick questions. So I love, I love this line in the book, um, Tim, and I want you to elaborate on a little bit. The leader's job, this is what you said. The leader's job is to increase intellectual friction and decrease social friction. That is so good. Explain what you mean by that. You said it several times. Sure. So if you think about innovation, innovation is by its very nature disruptive of the status quo. In order to innovate, you need intellectual friction. That's your raw material. You need ideas colliding. You need this creative abrasion and constructive dissent. So the leader's job is to simultaneously get that intellectual friction up so that we can innovate, so that we can solve problems, so that we can come up with solutions. But at the same time, keep the social friction down because humans are sensitive. So if the conversation or the dialogue or the discussion gets personal or disrespectful, that social friction will shut down your intellectual friction. So the best leaders that I'm around, the best leaders that I've ever seen, they can take intellectual friction really high and keep the social friction down really low. If you can do that, watch out. The team yeah. will perform beyond your expectations. And, and so that social friction in a meeting, let's just say a, a meeting setting, I'm looking and inviting, to use your words earlier, welcoming dissent and debate. And yet I'm to keep the social friction down. Perhaps what I'm doing is making sure nobody is punishing that person that's innovating or challenging or asking a question, that's my job, right? That's your job. Make sure I'm not doing it and no one in the room is punishing that person for asking those questions. That's right. You're going to patrol the borders of respect and Hmm. you cannot allow violations. If you allow violations, you change the norm and the dynamic on the team. And if, if if you continue to allow it, Watch out because it's going to be over. The intellectual so, friction will be shut down. I love that. So last question. Gosh, I have so many more, but because this is such an issue in so many, like I can't point to one organization or one team that I'm aware of anywhere that's not dealing with this right. because our, our economy today and over the last few years and certainly into the future, you could make the case we've got to be innovating at a speed that's just ever increasing. And so anyway, this is my question. So I'm on a team and I don't feel this psychological safety and it doesn't exist. And maybe it's a large corporation and this business unit or this area, I don't feel a lot of it. Um, And I push back on it to try to change it. And I I guess here's my question. What percentage of the time, if you could guess, is a leader willing to move on this? So, because I'm trying to make a decision as an employee, 
do I stick this out and keep raising my hand even though it keeps getting shoved down or is it time to go? Help me yeah. help, help, help people who are in that situation. So what you're saying, Russ, is you're talking about the risk-reward calculation that we all do informally and subconsciously. We all do it all the time. And what we're trying to do is we want to push, we want to test the environment to see if the environment, the team, the leaders will respond to what we're trying to do and maybe change, Right. So the only thing I can say is that this is a matter of judgment and every situation is different, but we're going to test the culture. We're going to test the environment. We're going to push and we're going to see what happens. If the retribution comes swiftly, then we say, oh, I got it. So I either keep my head down or I bounce and I'm out of here and I go to a different organization or a different team where I can put things on the table. So we are constantly doing this analysis, constantly. And I do encourage people to push and test the waters because increasingly, well, take, take a look at millennials. Millennials come into the workplace. They expect psychological safety as a, as a term of employment. Right. And if they don't get it, they're just calling timeout and they're saying, hang on a second. What, what, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. So we don't have psychological safety here. Uh, adios. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is becoming the norm. And so leaders that can't handle, that can't foster and cultivate psychological safety. Hey, can I just tell you, go find a clean mirror because mm-hmm. you got an expiration date on your forehead as a leader. <laughs> you're not going to make it. You're not, not going to make it through this decade. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Or maybe the next year at the rate we're going, maybe the right? next year. Yeah. I mean, it's so true, Tim. If you, if you look at the organizations, I'm just thinking through as you say that out loud, I'm thinking through organizations that I've been in, you know, on site with them and, and those companies that are well known and are growing like mad, they have the culture you're describing and the organizations that are going, man, how do we retain talent? How do we recruit better talent? How do we, you know, that are having those issues, they don't have the psychological safety. So um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's an absolutely valid point. Well, uh, Tim, I, I could go on and on. So many, so many great ideas. I think the book is brilliant. I think the timing is awesome. I read through, I was telling you before we started recording, it's, it, the book is so meaty and yet not so heady that you go, okay, I need to put it down because my head's hurting. Um, so I, I thought you did a really, really effective job of writing it. I appreciate you spending time, not only researching this, cause it's clear you didn't make a decision one day and go, okay, I think I'm going to put a book out in a month or two about this. It's something you've spent some time and energy researching and, uh, and capturing well. So that's a long way of saying, thanks for being on the show, Tim. No, it's my pleasure, Russ. Thanks for having me. Hey everyone, a couple of quick things. First, you can watch the interview you just listened to. Yeah, the link to watch it on YouTube is in the show notes in whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. You might want to forward that link to friends or colleagues that would find it useful as well. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, just tap on that subscribe button. You'll get two new great episodes each week. And finally, I want to invite you to our private Facebook group. I spend time there in between the episodes. It's for leaders like us. You can access it 
by going to theculturehacks.com.